This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code REALSIMPLE at checkout to get 10% off. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. During the early stages of romantic love, the sex is new, exciting, and it's probably happening a lot. But as the years go on, most people in long-term relationships see their sexual satisfaction begin to fizzle. Or at least that's what we've always been told, and what pop culture would have you believe. But there's some good news on this front in the form of new research that looks at how sexually happy couples stay that way. The findings revealed that the couples who were most satisfied had some things in common. They tried new things. They took time out to set the mood for sex. They communicated openly about what they needed and desired. The upshot? They worked on it a lot. The study was released last month in the Journal of Sex Research, and here to talk about the new findings and how you can possibly use them in your own life are Ian Kerner, a sex therapist and founder of GoodInBed.com, and Vanessa Marin, a psychotherapist, writer, and sex educator. Hi, Ian. Hey, Lori. Hey, Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa. Hi to you, too. So in the new study that I was just referring to in my intro, the Finding said that two-thirds of sexually satisfied respondents said that their sex lives now are as passionate as they were in the early stages of their relationship. This stunned me, and I wanted to see, Ian, first, if this stunned you too. I was kind of surprised because, you know, according to some statistics, 40 million uh, Americans describe themselves as being in sex-starved relationships. It's probably the number one presenting issue that uh, that I see in my practice. But of course, I'm seeing the people who are coming to sex therapy who are having problems. But I, I was I was rather uh, stunned, but also pleasantly surprised. How about you? I'm wondering, Vanessa, if you thought this finding was interesting. I actually wasn't as surprised as the two of you. And I think that's because they qualified this as two-thirds of sexually satisfied respondents. So these were the people who were already saying that they were satisfied, you know, with their relationships. And I do think that passion, you know, can be sustained in the in the long-term relationship. I might be a little bit of an optimist in that sense, but I think a lot of people have a fear that it can't be sustained. And there's this thought of, oh, we've been together for 15 years. We can't possibly have that same level of passion anymore. And I think that that can actually really lead to a sense of paralysis where couples are afraid to even make an effort or even try anything to get their sex lives back on track. And I I absolutely believe that, yes, you, you know, you can't have those early feelings of touching each other for the very first time, kissing each other for the very first time. But those early experiences, they get replaced with other qualities like deepening trust, deepening intimacy, actually learning what works and doesn't work for the two of you. So I do think at the end of the day, there's just as much potential there. It just does require um, an ongoing effort. Yeah, you know, I was going to just add to that, Laurie. Um, I think sometimes um, the, the most satisfied couples are the ones whose sexual temperaments are kind of calibrated. For example, I often 
see um, individuals in my practice who are sexually adventurous and they're sexual thrill seekers. And then I see plenty of individuals who are sort of comfort creatures, like same bed, same position. And, you know, when two sort of thrill seekers get together, uh, it's often really successful. And kind of when two comfort creatures get together, I mean, speaking personally, my wife and I are comfort creatures. And I feel like we have kind of like the good old Chinese food version of sex. It's sort of, it's the same thing, but it really always tastes good every time we have it. And so the problems that I often see are when people really differ in their sexual temperaments. So is that, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but I'm glad you did, Ian. It's a very, uh, a really interesting comment. And I guess I, I feel like what can people do before they decide to be in a long-term relationship if they think or they can determine that they're not sexually, com- you know, compatible. It sounds like, you know, that is a huge warning sign that people who are considering kind of settling into a long-term relationship should really heed. Yeah, I mean, I think so many of the real conflicts that I deal with between couples around sex is this difference in um sexual temperament. One person decides they really want to start going to sex parties or maybe swinging or, you know, uh, being more adventurous when it comes to kink. And, you know, the other partner may be willing to go along for the ride, but uh, doesn't get the same level of arousal out of it. And, you know, I kind of tend to look at it a little bit like swimming in a pool. There's a a shallow end and, and a deep end. And when I kind of work with couples who have these temperament differences, but really nonetheless want to stay together. We we do work on trying to find sort of an intermediate part of the pool. And I'll I'll be honest, it, it really isn't always easy. So the common thread between the couples who did say in this research study that they they were able to keep passion alive was their willingness to try new things and to add variety to their sex life. I wasn't surprised by this at all, and yet I do think that especially when you're settled into a long-term relationship, if that's not something that you often do or are comfortable with or maybe you and your partner don't really have the right chemistry in that way, it can be really difficult. Vanessa, what are some resources and some ways that couples, where can they turn for new ideas so that they can keep kind of going? Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, you know, we've all heard this advice that we should be spicing up our sex lives. I mean, it's probably, you know, some of the oldest sex advice in the book, but I think a lot of people get really intimidated by the idea. And I think that there's this belief that trying new things in bed means you've got to whip out the, you know, the bondage gear or have a threesome or go to the swingers club, like Ian was talking about. And I think in reality, even very small changes can make a really big impact on a couple's sex life. So that's one of the reasons why I was really excited to see the results of this study, because the people in the study, they listed very manageable things that made them happy and made them feel satisfied. And little things like, you know, lighting candles and showering together, putting on music. These are things that any couple could do. And in my own work with clients, I've had the same kinds of experiences. You know, I'll give people really simple, non-threatening suggestions to get started with, and they always come back with feedback uh, along the lines of, you know, wow, I didn't realize that would have such a big impact. To your point, Vanessa, some of the things were really quite simple that people said they did to keep things going. And you you mentioned a few, but they also tried new sexual positions. They, as you said, took a bath or a shower together. 
They said that getting or giving a massage was something that helped them. Um, Lingerie, talking about or acting out fantasies. So these, as you said, aren't about sex clubs and bondage. They're really, to me, what they suggest is actually the need to make a little bit of time. Yeah, and I I was just going to add, Lori, I think, you know, when it comes to um, uh, generating desire and arousal, there are kind of two types of stimulation. There's uh, physiological stimulation. I mean, if you you touch your body or your partner's body long enough, something will happen. But there's also um, psychological stimulation or psychogenic stimulation. I mean, you know, going back to the... um, studies of the research of Masters and Johnson, they found women who were able to virtually think their way to orgasms. And if you if you think about it, when you're walking down the street, you can get very aroused just through your own imagination and what you're seeing and experiencing. And what I really find with couples is that they often have a good physical vocabulary for how to communicate with each other, but they have little to no sort of psychological vocabulary. They're not sharing fantasies. They're not stimulating each other's imaginations or creativity. And I think uh, so much of the work that I do with couples is about sort of adding a a, a psychological degree of stimulation. And I was just um, working with a woman um, just very recently, and she was incredibly shy and incredibly intimidated and would not you know, didn't want to read erotica aloud, didn't want to watch porn with her partner, didn't really know her own fantasy life. And so we were really sort of kind of like a a ground zero, but she wanted to try something new. And I said to her, you know, um, do you think you could just tell your partner that you had a really sexy dream about him? And she said, yeah, I could, I think I could do that. And I said, you know, just, you know, say, you know, I don't know what my unconscious was doing, but man, did I have like this kind of hot dream and just kind of fill in the blanks from there with something sexy. And it was just the smallest step, but I think it really kind of opened up that doorway to developing that psychological vocabulary. And do you think it was just that you gave her a framework Yeah, I think I gave her something simple. And I think I gave her something that was simple that she wouldn't feel judged by her partner, her partner wouldn't, you know, think she was too kinky or perverse, the idea that, you know, we all have sexual dreams or daydreams and sort of being able to sort of blame it on her unconscious Mm -hmm. a little bit. So I think I gave her like, just the easiest way to step into that shallow end of the pool. So you bring up a point that I wanted to raise because it, this came out in the study, which was that one of the other predictors of a satisfying sex life for the people who were in this research study was that they were effective communicators, um, and that was a large predictor of their sexual satisfaction. I wanted to know, maybe Vanessa, you can start. Like, what is an effective communicator? What does effective communication look like in a long-term relationship? And when should it be happening? Yeah, I mean, communication is a really crucial part of great sex, and you know, we need it for so many different reasons. I mean, you need to communicate, you know, when you feel desire for your partner. You need to communicate how the moment, you know, how the experience is going for you in the moment, giving your partner feedback. So there are just a lot of different, you know, types of communication. 
I think that in the moment is probably the most optimal time for that to happen because it helps you stay connected to your own sense of pleasure. So if you're giving your partner feedback about, you know, that feels really good, you have to be able to be in touch with that sense of, oh yeah, my body does feel really good to give that feedback. And I think being in the moment and, you know, communicating with your partner is also a way for the two of you to be more connected. Uh, I think a lot of people get really intimidated by the idea of communicating in the moment. So if you're a beginner to this or if you're you know, shy or just not a very vocal person, um, I usually encourage my clients to start with a, a post-sex download session. So you know, in those moments after you've just been intimate, you're kind of in the afterglow with each other and you know, hopefully feeling really connected and relaxed and happy – it's just a great moment to, um, you know, to tell your partner some feedback, like, wow, I really loved the way you were touching me. You know, it felt amazing, or I couldn't even really tell what you were doing, or, you know, that position was a lot of fun. So it just opens up some space and makes it a little bit easier for couples to start practicing those skills. And what if the feedback is negative? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be, you know, some way that we can improve with our partners. So I think uh, a lot of couples, it's just getting in the mindset of recognizing that it doesn't need to be negative feedback, you know, telling your partner they did a terrible job or anything like that, but just giving them, you know, kind of redirecting them and uh, helping them find the things that actually, you know, you really do like or really do work for you. There's so many ugly-looking sites out there on the internet, and I see them all the time at my desk, when I'm at work, when I'm looking around for things, and it always leaves me really uninspired. But sites that look professionally designed and are clean and easy to read, those are the sites I want to stay on. And often, those sites are by Squarespace. Squarespace offers intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for one year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code real simple to get 10% off your first purchase. Another thing besides effective communication that came up in this study was that 75% of the men and the women who said they were satisfied said that in their last sexual encounter, at least one of the partners had said, I love you. This seems like a really simple takeaway that couples can incorporate into their sex lives. Um, It's kind of sweet. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, um, you know, from 20,000 feet, there's sort of three types of sex. There's procreative sex, uh, when we're just sort of out to make a baby. There's relational sex, which is hopefully an expression of, um, you know, a very loving, uh, affirming uh, relationship, however it's structured. And most of our relationships here are structured around monogamy or many of them. And then I think there's also uh, recreational sex, you know, sex for the sake of sex. And I always try and advise couples to kind of find what I call a recreational balance where there's, you know, one foot solidly in the relational perspective and in that hopefully secure attachment that you have with your partner and being able to tell your partner, I love you during sex and to have the experience of lovemaking, I think is really the base of the pyramid that you can build up from there. And And in terms of doing those new and novel things or cultivating some sexual adventurousness, I think for most of us, who are um, monogamously attached, you know, we really need the safety net of that secure attachment. So this study mentioned, and many studies before it have mentioned that one of the keys, as I mentioned earlier, to, to maintaining 
a healthy sex life over the long term is to make time for sex, whether that's a date night or a trip or, you know, sort of whenever you can find some time, making sure that it's prioritized. Vanessa, you've written about how couples can have, quote, hotel sex at home, which I think is you know, for most of us, a more realistic option um, for busy people. And so could you talk a little bit about how someone can set the stage for that kind of hot sex in their own home, maybe even with children around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, vacation sex is almost universally, you know, some of the best sex that couples report. And of course, you know, it's not going to be possible to fully replicate that experience of, you know, going away somewhere new. But I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from, you know, hotel sex and vacation sex and, you know, why we like it so much that we can bring back into the home. So I think that, you know, a big part of it is there's a lot of novelty, you know, in and of itself. So this study, you know, was all about finding, you know, new and novel things to do together. Of course, you know, being on vacation, you're away from your new, your usual routine, you're in a new place, you're staying somewhere new. I think people also just give themselves permission to really relax, to slow down, to hopefully, you know, leave work at home and just focus on enjoyment and pleasure. I think one of the most interesting things about vacation sex is that it actually requires a ton of effort. I mean, you're, you know, you're booking plane tickets, you're figuring out where to go, you're booking the hotel, you're getting there. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of couples tend to really overemphasize spontaneity and they think that, you know, all good sex has to be spontaneous. And if you're, if there's any sort of element of planning or, you know, putting effort into it, it's a bad sign. But I think vacation sex is such a good reminder that, you know, no, effort and uh, enjoyment do not have to be, you know, in uh, in opposition to each other. And actually, you know, effort is one of the um, great ways to have great sex. So then if we want to get down into kind of more of the nitty gritty stuff too, I think it's also possible to try to just make your home feel more, you know, more like an oasis. So especially focusing on your bedroom and on your bathroom. So, you know, clean the space out, get rid of, you know, clutter, get rid of distractions, even if it's just for a night or for a weekend, you know, taking the TV out of the bedroom, leaving the laptops out of the bedroom, your cell phones out of the bedroom, um, and just trying to make the space feel really beautiful and luxurious and comfortable. One of the studies' findings when they looked, when they broke down their research by gender, one of the interesting findings I thought was that nearly half of the sexually dissatisfied women said they were, quote, just going through the motions for my partner's sake compared to only 13% of sexually dissatisfied men. I wanted to get your take on that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think this results from the fact that, you know, women are socialized to be caretakers much more than men are. So we do tend to feel more pressure just in, you know, very broad brushstrokes, but to, uh, you know, to submit to our partner's needs and to just go along, you know, with it. I do think that also most couples tend to overemphasize intercourse. And it's obviously, you know, logistically a lot easier for a woman to just go with the flow than it is for a man. Ian, what are your thoughts on this about women going through the motions? You know, the first thing that came to my mind is that uh, so many men are just illiterate. You know, they know more about what's under the hood of a car than the hood of a clitoris, and they're focused on positions or sexual positions that really 
don't always provide the persistent rhythmic stimulation that would really um, help to really arouse their partners. And so I hear from a lot of women that, um, you know, sex is not a consistently orgasmic or consistently rewarding experience. And it, you know, after a while really just chips away at their incentive and motivation to have sex. On the other hand, I've also really talked to so many women who say, you know, I sort of, I want to want sex. I don't want it. But when I come up with a reason to have sex and I put my body through the motions, generally my mind will often catch up. So sometimes it's the fake it till you make it and you actually do make it. Yeah. What do you think, Vanessa? Yeah, I do think that is the case for a lot of women. I mean, I think you have to be really careful with what your motivations are. If it's this sense of, you know, I want to want sex again, I'm having a hard time getting into the, you know, into the mood, then absolutely. I think a lot of women, a lot of women just take a little bit longer to get aroused and to really get going than they realize. So a lot of women will catch themselves, you know, having made the decision to go along with it, like, oh, actually, I am really enjoying myself. This is, you know, this is, uh, I'm having a good time. Of course, on the other hand, if you're feeling pressure to, you know, just go with the flow because, you know, your partner's pressuring you or you're pressuring yourself or, you know, you feel like there are these expectations you're supposed to live up to, then I think you want to be careful with that, you know, that it is important for all of us to give ourselves permission to say no when we genuinely, you know, genuinely do not want to be intimate in that moment. Yeah. And I also wonder if women are a little more sensitive to stress and uh, anxiety during sex. Well, I think we hear, I anecdotally, without naming all of my friends' names, I'll say that I hear a lot <laughs> from women, many women who have children, that there's so many other details uh, that are going through their head when they they want to be having sex and they, they maybe are having sex, but they are really thinking about the next day's appointments, lunches, you know, work stuff. One of my friends had a lot of success with moving, actually moving her desk out of the bedroom because even just like getting, catching a peek of a bill or a computer while she was trying to get in the mood for sex would derail the whole thing, which I thought was, you know, really interesting and sort of confirms what we're, we're talking about. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you have to create the right environment and also commit to a process where um, arousal can become louder than anxiety. So before we wrap up, I wanted to see if Ian, you had any, if there was any finding from this particular study, which was so interesting and surprising in many ways that you felt was the most useful that actual couples could use um, in their own lives and take away from it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Lori, in some ways this dovetails with the last conversation we had where we talked about a study in which uh, couples who had sex once a week were, were much more satisfied than couples who did not. And that going from, say, one time a week to four times a week didn't really qualitatively change the level of satisfaction as much as just going from zero to one time. So right. let's say you are a couple who now is having sex once a week. I think it's not just about the having sex once a week. It's about what you're doing um, in that once a week. And a, a good friend of mine, Susanna Asenza, who's a sex therapist, she always does this little project with her patients called creating sex menus. And you kind of, you know, come up with what is your menu going to be for the week and what are you going to put on that menu? And so I think the idea of dovetailing that with this study 
and having sex once a week and finding the new items that you want to put on your sex menu is really a, a recipe for sort of having a sexually nutritious love life. <laughs> Let's just work that yeah. metaphor. Yeah, let me just squeeze every little bit of lemon juice out of that metaphor. <laughs> Vanessa, what's your favorite finding and what do you think couples can learn from this study? You know, I don't know if I have, you know, one exact favorite out of the study, but I think the study itself can be a really great um, inspiration for couples and a way to just, you know, open up the conversation, you know, send it to your partner or send this podcast to your partner and, you know, ask them to listen to it and, or read it and say, you know, hey, why don't we go out on Saturday night and talk about it? So you can just really use it to get inspiration and to kind of get started on a list of new things that you might want to try out, maybe add to your menu. <laughs> And thanks so much for being here, as always. Thanks, Laurie. Vanessa, is great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. As always, if you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email me at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Music.